They're very dainty, these cups as well. What's that, Ellen? 1966. In some ways, it was very different in the North because, if for those of us old enough to remember, the Minister for Home Affairs at the time in Northern Ireland, Bill Craig, banned a lot of the parades, and that was a big thing for us. And um, in fact, it underlined, I suppose, for many of us, um, difficulties we had with the Northern State. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. looking back on it now, that many of my contemporaries within the was the broad nationalist community. I think their memories of 1966 uh, focus more on the World Cup won by England in 1966 <laughs> than, than they do on, or than they did at that time on the mm-hmm. on the commemorations <laughs> in Dublin. And has to be very honest about it. I was um, I was a student in Oxford at the beginning of 1966, and I returned to get what is essentially my set, the same job I'm in now. Uh, in Trinity that year, but also in that year my sister moved to Belfast. Now, I come from Cork, and I'd never uh, I think, I, yes, I'd been in Belfast a couple of times uh, just visiting. Um, but what I remember, first of all, I, what I remember particularly was walking home from the library in Oxford and hearing on a little uh, thing that you put in your ear in those days, um, the announcement of the return of the body of Roger Casement. And I remember being very you know, overcome by emotion by that. Uh, that was very early on in, the, in 1966. And then I remember seeing the photographs of the funeral, which was with, with the snowy uh, figure of, of de Valera in his big cloak and, uh, and the, uh, his bare head. And that, uh, there was... Uh, I, I was... You know, I, I, I certainly remember that part of it. And there would have been so many people alive who would have had direct memories, uh, I mean, in, in those communities still, even though they mightn't have been mm. perhaps as vocal as the people in the South. But there must have been a whole... I mean, it was just that generation who had been very, really young in 1916, uh, slightly possibly active in 1920, and mm. then... Well, I think still when you around. remember it, a lot of them were still alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps not the major figures. I think maybe the biggest figure still alive in '66 would have obviously been named De Valera. But north of the border, there would have still been a lot of people who would have remembered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather was dead, but his two brothers were still alive. Uh, they had participated in the rally in Cull Island. They had known about it. They had been there. They could talk about it. And... Uh, Small things, I think, emerged as well as the bigger picture. Among a lot of Northern Republicans, the uh, repatriation of the remains of Roger Casement, it was welcomed in the sense that he was repatriated his remains to Ireland. But a lot of Northern Republicans would quote the fact that Casement's last wish was to be buried in Warlock Bay in County mm-hmm. Antrim. Mm-hmm. That was something the Wilson government was very, very careful to insist upon, that it would not happen. And yes. Things like that, uh, they were small and sentimental, but they always struck a certain chord among Republican people as well. But, but the anniversary itself can't be the thing that generated the Northern Republican resurgence, because if it was, then the resurgence would have happened around 66, whereas in fact it was a few years later. I mean, you yourself joined in 71 around then, presumably. It's, it's the sort of crucible for it was 68, 69, 70, 71, and the events in the North themselves, presumably, rather than the... The remembrance of the rising was, of course, it was, and I remember quite clearly uh, the 
bulk of my comrades, and I spent a lot of time talking about Irish history to my comrades in jail, and I spent a lot of time in jail. And I remember quite clearly that the events of 1916 were vague and hazy for a lot of of the IRA of my generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them remembered the commemoration of 1966, but they were young at the time. The bulk of the the IRA of the of, of the last 30 years are, were were very young at the time of the 1966 commemoration. Uh, their memories were more of actually, as as you would expect from youngsters, of ice cream and a parade and the bands rather than the actual political import because they were young. What else would they be? And I remember clearly talking to them and even the seven signatories. Very many of my contemporaries, when they were brought to prison, they could name one or two or possibly three, but I, I, I think very few of them could even name the seven. Practically none of them could tell you the different outposts and the garrisons and uh, and how the rising took place. The vast majority of them had never been to Dublin. I had been once or twice to Croke Park uh, in in those years. So, uh, yes, it it was conditions within the north that produced the IRA of the 70s, 80s and 90s, not not any great uh, upsurge as a result of of 1966. Your apologies. (laughs) Hello, how are you? Tommy Rickton. Nice to I mean, oh Lord, I see. You're yes. fed. Do you want some, some coffee? Oh, anything? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, to your coffee. Oh, so you got the cup, I wondered. Sorry. Um, coffee, I think, yeah. Is that coffee? Okay. Well, I think one thing that perhaps that we don't always see about 1916 and the Irish struggle for independence is that it also had a part to play in the wider international movement for self-determination, that it was part of a process that, that, that happened through the 20th century. And while certainly the Irish campaign, if you like to call it that, didn't to any significant degree undermine the, the empire physically, it had a psychological impact and a political impact. It, it, it's a matter of record, for example, that Ho Chi Minh was in London and knew of the Irish Revolution, that the Indian continent mm-hmm. drew inspiration from the fact that Ireland was able to move away from uh, f- f- from London. So It was true of India particularly, mm-hmm. but I remember talking to President Bourguiba about 30 years ago, visiting there from the EU delegation, and when I introduced myself, he asked everybody where they're from, oh, Ireland, Terence McSweeney, remember the hunger strike so well? You see, we didn't do a hunger strike. We were locked up in prisons out in the desert. Nobody had known we were having one. <laughs> Very bad for the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> so we did have an impact, yes. Yes, yes everybody remembers uh, Terence McSweeney. It was when I went to France in, as a child in the, uh, the 1950s, uh, everybody, people said, Votre Lord Mère, because I came from Cork. Oh, yeah. it, was, it, yeah. was, it was the one thing that everybody yeah. knew. I was actually at the 1941 celebration. My mother brought me in, and I was up there with the Fianna Fáil ministers and their families and the GPO looking out the window at the uh, army parade on that occasion. What was it like? Um, my father didn't come. He wasn't that keen to be involved with the Fianna Fáil members of the government. My father had <coughs> been a Republican until the late 20s, <coughs> had less inhibitions. What, what are your memories of it? Did It was it, it was a military parade. Was a, I mean, uh, uh, we did have a substantial army at that time. It was about 50,000. So uh, even though... Some had to be in their posts in case anything happened, I suppose. Um, it was a very substantial parade, yeah, very impressive. 
There had been one in '34, I think, that Fianna Fáil government organised as a kind of Fianna Fáil occasion, mm-hmm. but this was a national occasion. A national one, the 25th, yeah. yeah. But I mean, the northern thing is one aspect which, whether or not you had 1916, there'd have been a problem with the vision of a united Ireland in terms of, uh, of persuading or coercing unionists, wouldn't there? I mean, in practical terms, whether it's right or wrong, there was obviously a problem in coercing them as, as the current They weren't going to coerce them. They weren't going to coerce But in terms of persuading, there was no sign that that was likely either. I mean, with or without 1916, it seems to me some form of partition was surely likely as now. Yes, but it? it needn't have taken the form it did, because right. it was the failure of the British to enforce their own Government of Ireland Act provisions on discrimination, letting that pass. And the failure of our government suppressed that issue. So our governments were spend so much time giving out about partition, <coughs> making propaganda out of it, often for advantage, particularly mm-hmm. at home. But they didn't actually pursue the issue of the rights of minority in Northern Ireland. They were there in '38, but he abandoned under pressure. Mm-hmm. So the, day, the day-to-day experience of nationalists, therefore, was a kind of neglected... Yeah. I mean, if the British government had done the right, what mm-hmm. it should have done, prevented discrimination, it would have evolved differently. I don't say better, but mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. And I doubt we would have ended up with the violence. Uh, which was of, uh, due to the frustration of people, the way they've been treated. Sure, sure. And the violence, I believe, was avoidable. And the reforms were going through, and more would have gone through if the violence had been avoided. And it, that's another day's work, but um, uh, it's a sad story. When I was at school, um, in my first poetry book, there was a poem by Stephen Gwynne called A Song of Defeat. Uh, but point uh, which had the line in it. Uh, but Brian fought and he won, referring to ten fourteen, uh, which is of course is a, a, a live date in many people's <coughs> minds. Um, uh, Brian fought and he won. God, that was long ago. And I think, <laughs> that, like, to, if if I was sitting around on <coughs> Easter Sunday, uh, nineteen sixteen, my grandparents were up in Rathmines getting married. Uh, but if I was, uh, if I was, I suppose, virtually there, I would have thought not another of those. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, perhaps there was. Well, uh, this goes back to Tommy's point as well, that there's a certain, once things have, have happened, there's a certain adjustment of people's position in terms of what you would like to have thought that you thought at the time. In other words, there were far more people afterwards who thought it was something you should celebrate and get into and make best of than were actually rallying to, to do it on the day. Well, I mean, far more people said they were there than were there. My father was number 323 in the... Golden list and GPO. We only fed two hundred people. It's one of the stories of raising. There, there, there wasn't physically enough room in the GPO to hold all of those who <laughs> claimed to have been there through the. Through but of the course, week. there was a military pension for, pe- for people who had to show that they were there. <laughs> so there was a, a, a reason. There was a man. I know it was small, but mm. I read the poet Joseph Campbell, who was actually interned in the um, Civil War, uh, claimed later that he had. Uh, helped a wounded man outside uh, the College of Surgeons and therefore put in for a military pension. But he didn't get the pension. Well, when my father delivered the wounded to Jersey Hospital and was let go by the British officer and ended up finally going home to Bray, and in a scare he went to the Campbell's house. But Nancy seemed happy enough, but Joseph was so nervous he felt he had to move on. Uh, so he wasn't no, that heroic at the time. I don't think he was. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> it's easier to be heroic it after. Worthwhile, and he was very badly off, having no invented the discipline of Irish studies <clears throat> in America. He had come back to Ireland in a rather poor uh, state mm. and uh, was looking for anything that was yeah, going. He did the money. But I think when you're talking about the numbers who participated, 
some days we can look at them as being very small. But I think the startling thing is that that number participated at all. Because this yes. is a huge, a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that over the course of the week, the insurgent numbers were being added to. Mm. It wasn't just the starting number. Now, they certainly never were adequate to, to cope with the attack of the British. And I think we have to take into account impracticalities that in spite of the some dubious claims to being there mm. on the day, that certainly in many areas, I think you're going to have to take into consideration that a lot of people who were not perhaps officially members of the volunteers could have possibly helped out building barricades. Members of the ITNG mm-hmm. W mm-hmm. perhaps helped the citizens' army in practical senses. And every army, the Americans use the term teeth to tail in terms of the amount of people that are required to support the fighting people. Mm-hmm. So there could quite conceivably have been more people actually making a valuable contribution to the to the defence of the Republican area than, than, than we might conventionally mm-hmm. think, I think that's a, a thing to keep in mind, but just the, the magnitude of what was involved. The numbers who participated were not at all to be dismissed. Well, considering the confusion and the countermanding and the countermanding mm-hmm. and the exactly. countermanding, yeah. <coughs> diminished the numbers. Any numbers turned out was remarkable. Mm-hmm. <coughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's a reflection on the temper of the time that the old idea that Ireland was entirely sleeping, as, as they would have said, and that it was entirely in the camp of, the, of constitution and nationalism, and this small group of men, by act of sacrifice, completely transformed the situation. I think that's a, it's a very... That's what they themselves st- thought. They, they, they probably did, but I think it reflected, Garrett, the, the temper of the people, that the people were prepared to move in a direction. I think events subsequent to the rising yeah. demonstrated mm-hmm. there was much, much more support for militant action than sometimes we have. But the, the part of that, Tommy, was surely that there were things after 1916 which contributed to that. I mean, the conscription crisis in 1918 oh, yeah. made a significant difference. But also, I think, wartime economic conditions with unemployment and high food prices turned Irish nationalists even further away from the British war effort. And also, I think, the fact that in, in 1914 you might have one view of what joining it was going to mean. By 1917, you knew something else about what it was going to be. So there are kind of practical reasons, as well as 1916, aren't there, for the, yeah. the intensification of nationalism? Of, of, of course, of course there is. And, I mean, if anybody had yeah. any doubts, the July of 1916 demonstrated on this island the cost of war on the Somme, Horrifically, particularly yeah. on the northern area, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, across the island, Gallipoli and, uh, and incidents like that certainly reinforced the, the, mm-hmm. the opinion. But I, I still believe that these things don't change as dramatically as sure. some of the older pictures would, would, sure. would, would paint. I think it takes more time to turn people. It's, it's like a large tanker at sea turning. It takes time to turn. And while undoubtedly 1916 was one of the key pricks in this, uh, in, in, into the balloon, at the same time there was a, an underlying current of, of insurrection and disaffection there that was that manifested itself perhaps. I think in the description ways. you're right about that it was an important fact. My father always thought... That that the role of conscription in reviving nationalism was 
underestimated and that relative to the execution of 916 was more important than people thought. I've never seen much evidence for that, I have to say, the concrete kind, but he held that view. I've seen quite a lot of memoirs from Republicans saying things to that effect that it mobilised far more people because it impinged on them directly in a way that was... was, And also you had at that point, you know, the Catholic Church was very keen to support that in a way it wouldn't support the 1916 rebellion at the time. So there are forces that would move a lot of people towards it. Um, But I I think all of this suggests that 1916 is a kind of accelerate... What you're presenting it as is a sort of accelerator of trends rather than something that starts it from afresh, isn't it? I, that's my opinion of it. Mm. And as mm. I say, I've, I, I've likened it, for example, to Castro's attack on the Mancada. But I suppose once you had 1916, it was inevitable that what would emerge would be uh, here, a unicultural state. Well, in, in that sense, I suppose that goes back to what I was saying earlier on, Garrett, that, that that does seem to me to point to some of the less benign features of, of what happened, surely, because it, mm. it does point towards... Yeah, what, who were the winners and who were the losers in 1916 and its legacy? I mean, the losers in some ways were the minorities in both sides of the border. I mean, were they not? I mean, yes, very much. Particularly yeah. in the north, clearly. But but to some degree, it was you got two majoritarian states. You got two states built in yeah. the image of the majority. Neither of them particularly pretty by standards yeah. that we would now have. Yeah. And, and I, I think 1916 doesn't solely cause that, but it does contribute no. to its likelihood. It I'm afraid. The, the, the damage was done in 1914 already. It's done already. <laughs> but, and I, but there's the also the reinforcement Still. of stereotypes, don't mm. you? Because, yeah. I mean, if you look at I mean, the importance of, uh, I don't know, from Yeats to Hyde to Erskine Childers, uh, the, 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 the existence of what one might call, in different ways, a Protestant protest, and the, and the importance mm. of the Protestant contribution in the South, which was important throughout often in, only in terms of fostering indigenous, indigenous industry. But the assumption that if you were Protestant, you were also X and Y, that if you were Catholic in the North, you were also X and Y, uh, is much more, I think, that, that's something that really did advance over the century, whereas in the uh, 1920s, was, I think that there was still a great deal more fluidity in those identities. Because I think that 1916 wasn't monocultural. The insurrectionists were not, because there were different trends within it, and it wasn't purely Gaelic. What came out of it was, but what came out of it was. But I think it was the those who eventually come to dominate post the the, particularly the treaty and post the civil war. That's what emerged then. But looking at 1916 and those going into 1916, Mm. we were looking at a very significant input from the citizens' army about or just over 200 of, of the 1,000 who mustered on that Monday morning. I mean, you're talking about 20% of the numbers were from the Citizens' Army with, with significant support in the city of Dublin. <laughs> now, undoubtedly, as Gareth had said, there wasn't an industrial proletariat in Ireland to bring about that type of a society post-1921. Mm-hmm. And there was also, even within the more classical IRB section, there was those of the Gaelic Romanticists mm-hmm. on one hand, and there was the old revolutionists on the mm-hmm. other hand, uh, although they cooperated eventually, but they, the, the, the mythology that spun around Pierce, that, which was only one part of his personality, I would argue, on one hand, and the other, the, the insurrectionist, the revolutionist, that was Clark and that was McGermott, there was a, there, there was a difference, and I, I, I suspect that it manifested itself in different forms later on. I think that's true, but I also think that none of those groups that you mentioned had any great understanding of or sympathy with unionism. 
for example. No, they, they, they all thought wasn't. unionism wasn't really a problem. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the great blind spot, isn't it? That Total it, blind that, spot. That's from yeah. Connolly right across. And I think that, that, is, that is the problem. Now, unionists had a problem with nationalism and the blind spots were, were on both sides. And goodness knows the British state had a problem with Ireland. But, but, I, think, <laughs> but I think there was, there was surely a Republican blind spot. I, I think you have to accept that. But I think uh, in Connolly's defence, we have to say that he talked about the carnival of reaction that would emerge post-partition. Uh, I don't think he was unaware of it. And bear in mind, I suppose, that Connolly had spent a period of his working life in Belfast, mm. so he knew, knew about these things and, and had made several attempts to address them through the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union when he was an official of that. But yes, I think in general, Dublin people don't have a very clear understanding, didn't they, and possibly still don't have of the difficulties and the position of unionism and, and the difficulties created and by the further south community. less. Well, yes. true. And even less interest, too. <laughs> well, well, that's true. But, um, I mean, the, the, these are the facts of life. But, I mean, I, th- I think it would be asking a lot of those that committed themselves to the insurrection on Monday morning of 1916, Easter, to have this very sophisticated view of what sure. we might be doing about unionism, what concerns would the British uh, sympathisers, the loyalists in, in Dublin... Mm. Uh, and, and in other parts of the 26 counties, especially burning, bearing in mind that a lot of them would have known uh, Yeats and his circle. So mm-hmm. there, there was a division even within what you would call the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the old English in, in, in Southern Ireland. They weren't entirely all... Loyal to the crown, as as we know from from here or from from William Butler. The majority were well, they were. So they were, of course, yeah. in any society, you always get I suppose individual, especially in the literary world. I think different Bohemians, yeah. But I mean, my my view, I suppose, Tommy, is I, I quite agree that the, the the sincere rebels who go out on Easter Monday, of course, have a vision which is which is firing them up in terms of a vision of an inspiring mm-hmm. Ireland that's republican, and I, I respect that. I suppose what I'm saying is that it, if there had been on all sides a more uh, how can I put it, a less absolutist, a less ambitious view of, of winning rather than compromising. That might have led to more, that might have got us to where we ultimately hope we'll get to now, but much more quickly, I suppose that's what I'm saying. I, I, I doubt it, to be quite honest. This is always the revolutionary's dilemma. At what stage are you doing more damage than good? Mm. And would events change if the revolution doesn't take place? And I mean, I've heard the constitutional argument made so often and put in the case that had we let the situation drift, that Ireland could have evolved in the same way that Canada and Australia and New Zealand evolved and with with much less aggravation and distress. I'm not sure that would have happened uh, for no other reason than the, the geography. What did you make of the 75th anniversary of the Rising Garrett? I was bothered by it. Um, nothing was done. I should have taken prices and no buy. Indeed, I, I wrote them. The papers I delivered from Hollingford from summer school and um, they were published uh, on some issues involved and the significance of Irish independence and why it was necessary and why becoming independent as lockdown 16 was a very positive thing because nobody else was saying this at the time. I was taken aback by that. Mm-hmm. The uh, Poetry Island put on uh, an all-day read-in in the GPO as a protest against the non-commemoration. Mm. 
which uh, I took part in. It was good. It was how good. How it was did good. it go? We was did it something. It was very good. There was um, uh, there was a bus outside. I remember in which Garrett Brown uh, was seemed to be handing out goodies to participants, and there were people wandering around the streets. And one of them actually saw that I was carrying a book and it had a photograph of me on the back of it, and they said. Did you write that book? And they were really <laughs> astonished to meet somebody who had written a book and had the book there to show it. <laughs> as an event, it was quite good, but of course it wasn't the same as a public commemoration by any means. Rulers and defenders of realms had need to be wary if they would guard against such processes. Life springs from death and from the graves of patriot men and women spring living nations. The defenders of this realm have worked well in secret and in the open. They think that they have pacified Ireland. They think that they have purchased half of us and intimidated the other half. They think that they have foreseen everything, think that they have provided against everything. But the fools, the fools, the fools, they have left us our undead. And while Ireland holds these graves, Ireland unfree shall never be at peace. When did you first come across that? Tommy, when did you first hear that? Oh, oh I did, remember the headmaster <coughs> in Dungannon Academy, Father MacIntaggart, brought in an LP. And I can't remember who was speaking that oration on the oh, yeah. on, on the long playing record, and he played it for us in 1966. Right. And it was the first time I had heard the the oration, and it was it was very moving. And it was the first time I had ever been to Dublin. A few weeks after that, the school organised a trip to Dublin, which was a big event for mm. us. And it, mm. it wasn't just to see the sights of 1916, which we were taken around. But just getting to Dublin for <laughs> northern youngsters to see a big city and yes. to travel on the bus and, of course, <laughs> being schoolboys in the CIE canteen, we behaved outrageously and misbehaved alarmingly. But um, that's when I, I, I first heard it in 1966 and, and, and it was read out very sonorously. It was very moving when think about it. Um, it. It has to be one of the great mm. pieces of oratory mm. of, in, in Ireland and in Irish history. Mm. Possibly yeah. the only other piece that would come close to it would be Emmett's speech from the dock mm. before his execution. We're great talkers. We haven't been great orators. Mm. <laughs> well, oratory, as they say, is to move the people. Yeah. It's the difference between a lecture. A lecture oh, is yeah. bound by all the rules of academia and has to <laughs> show balance. Oratory is to move the people. Yeah. And I think you have to say that Pierce moved the people with that, 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 with that mm. piece of oratory. Um, and it, it is remained, but I still caution the fact that that was part of the warming up process, and that he did take counsel from Clark, and it was Clark, the determined old revolutionary, who said to him, "When Pierce said, what do I say? How hot will I make it?'" And Clark said, "As hot as hell," because he knew what was needed. Mm-hmm. Though that time was the, the the great gesture in public was was so important. And sometimes what wasn't said, a couple of years after, to remember Collins is great, and almost brief, the briefest of brief speeches over Tom Ash. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the volley was fired over his grave, he said, that's the only 
oration that a Fenian deserves and left it that <laughs> almost as impactful yeah, as right. what Pierce had said and uh, mm. of course uh, one of the other great orators <laughs> the thing is to move it's to move the people and mm. our politicians today they spend a, they have a different they have a different attitude because they have to go on television and come through with a sound bite mm. come up with something memorable in, mm. in 30 seconds uh, at that time, there was a little bit more space, yes, time given to someone to, 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 to develop a point. But it was just as important. And that's why I do see uh, that, as a, that Pierce and what he, what he said and what he wrote. He was almost like the bugler. He blew the bugle to, to, to summon the troops to the, to the event. And they knew it. The, 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 the IRB leadership knew it and they knew what they had when they had Pierce. And I think we have to be careful that we don't confuse... The, the bugler with the, the entire mm. program of the of the event. Um, um, we have tea and coffee, if would anybody like one. Uh, yeah, so some coffee would be great. I'd, 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 I'd like some coffee. A coffee, yeah. coffee. Yeah. Gee, I just had so much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a the question of taste. I think we have to say that I think force and violence is distasteful. The question then is what can be done and what, what, what brings it about and does it then become the lesser of several evils and does it become, as Marx talked about, a midwife to change? On occasions, regrettably and unfortunately, it is. And I think but our attitudes to it have changed fundamentally, so it makes it difficult for people to, looking back down 16, to see it in the stark terms because um, people are much less willing to accept violence now. Well, I think only to this extent... Gerard, that there is no real legitimacy or no real purpose could be served, certainly in the 26 counties, by the use of force. Mm. The state is accepted by the vast majority of people. There would be no logic for it. I don't think you would necessarily say the same north of the border where there was a logic. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it's beyond criticism what happened, but there was much more support on both sides for the use of force over the last 30, 35 years because there was a, a belief which whether it was justified or not and I believe that it, to a certain extent and a large, certain, large extent possibly was that force was the only option and it was, it was used and supported because the state was irreformable was the, was the analysis made by the Republican people in, in, in Northern Ireland so I, I think support for violence as you call it it dissipates as the rationale or the the, the the cause for it dissipates as well. If you're in a wartime situation, uh, and the question is about 1916, were, whether they were or not, and because one could argue that on both sides. I mean, I, for example, it, it, when I think about this, I think about the United Nations troops who marched away at Srebrenica and left yeah. those people to be massacred. Yeah. And yeah. I think... Uh, what would what, what what should they have done in such a situation? What would have happened if they'd said to hell with this? We're going to stay. Mm. Um, on the other hand, uh, the person who fires the first shot at Sarajevo um, may not be the person who, who may, may not be justified. Um, in 1916, again, the the, the 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 ferment of the times, the. Uh, the, the very high value that was being placed on war, on war as the uh, proof of masculine ac activity, you know, also, of course, something which draws women in. Yes. Um, with I mean, people like uh, Constance Machiavitz turning from a labour agitator 
into uh, a, a, a soldier. I think you know that, that that makes for an entirely different mixture sure. of things. But I don't know if it was just war as a, an expression of masculinity. I mean, that's always present to a certain extent, I'm sure, in, in these situations. But war was the arbitrator. Mm-hmm. The great issues of history are decided by blood and iron, as Bismarck and Lenin said, and that was what was happening. Blood and iron was the arbiter at that period. There, there would have been no reason why the Irish revolutionists would have been different mm. from the rest of the world, certainly the European world that was, uh, was yeah. deciding and resolving its differences and the irreconcilable conflicts that they had found themselves in over which empire was to have supremacy in the world. And that was being decided with blood and iron on the continent. The, the Irish were going to take a similar lesson from it. And the argument that those of us who have supported their cause over the over the decades is that they didn't have a realistic option and they were perfectly entitled mm-hmm. not only in a moral sense because morality is something that we I personally have difficulty looking at and trying to impose my morality on something that happened 90 years ago right. but on a very cold assessment of it looking at the balance of forces and the various uh-huh. situations they found themselves in, as I say, the rejection of home rule three times in 30 years, the current mutiny the landing of the iron guns what realistic option had they, particularly when you bring the Fenian tradition into it, of England's opportunity being Ireland's, mm. or England's difficulties being Ireland's opportunities? They, they took a pragmatic decision as well, and it gave them a, a leverage that was going to happen mm. in the post-war settlement. But you, you could, you could also make a cold assessment, which came to a different conclusion. Arguably, though, Tommy, which is that. While they were pragmatic in what they were trying to do, there were obstacles that were predictable that were in their way, but it was unlikely that unionism was going to dissolve, as the rhetoric of Pierce would suggest that it might. It was unlikely, given the balance of forces in the peasant proprietary and the influence of Catholic Church, that Conley Marxism was going to be the ultimate result. In other words, I think there there was a pragmatism to them, and (coughs) I don't believe in imposing my morality on people 90 years ago, or even on people now, actually. But uh, but I do think that explaining things in terms of cold assessment could yield a more sceptical view, possibly, of it, Um, which isn't to lack respect for the people involved, some of them I have profound respect for, but it's, it's, it's more that I think there were certain unfortunate and divisive consequences of it as well to which it contributed. Not singly, it wasn't as if if you take 1916 rebels out, there'll be no gun in Irish politics or no gun in Europe. Of course there won't. But it, it, it was one of those sets of choices that people made at that time which did accentuate the use of violence as the, as the means of leverage. And I'm not, I'm not as clear as you are that that was a helpful gesture. I think that's my view. Trouble is the consequences of violence are unforeseeable and never quite people expect uh, and while I think the balance of the argument lies in favour of the view that 1916 without it we would not have become an independent state, might not uh, probably would not become an independent state with the benefits that has brought um, it did have also a downside but the people who initiate violence have no idea what the outcome is going to be. It's a clear responsibility to take. And sometimes it doesn't yield anything positive at all. Could we say something about that text that's hanging up there? Hmm? Uh, everybody's people know it uh, <laughs> by um. its typography more than by <laughs> what it actually says, even though we quote yeah. bits out of it yeah. quite frequently. But it strikes me that... Uh, it's a very moral text. I mean, the, or, or rather, it talks about mm. equality. Mm. It talks about uh, 
safety for non-combatants. Um, it was thought up in some sort of an ethical group, but who wrote it? I don't know. Yeah. Did Pierce write it? It's Pierce. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Did Pierce write Pierce it? Pierce wrote it, yeah. Well, most of it was drafted by Pierce. Yeah. Um, I think the word is that there was an input from others. I'm sure mm-hmm. that's true. And that, if you like, it was a, a document by committee or by consensus yeah. of the... After all, the Military Council signed the document. Yeah. Connolly certainly had input into some mm-hmm. of it. Oh, yeah. Yes, I think yeah. that... I th- I think Somebody there's, there's did a first that. draft. Yes. I think Pierce... Oh, sorry, was the is that tea? tea. Oh, yeah. no, milk in it. Sorry, sorry. I didn't explain that. No milk. It's a document that I have read every year for the last 30 and read out every Easter Sunday for the last 30 <laughs> in graveyards <coughs> around Ireland. So it's very much part of her right, beliefs. Well, somebody did the first draft, others then added to it. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. But it still remains an inspirational document. Uh, it was intent, that, that's what, that, that was the part, one, one of the points I wanted to make is that it's intended to be an inspirational document, but also one which lays down an objective um, of, of a programme and uh, barri- parameters, you know, that we are going to do the following within these limits. Yeah. <coughs> um, it, everything is not up for grabs. Uh, there is going to be, uh, uh, th- I mean, obviously, you know, there's, a, there's going to be a, a, a legitimate government in, in, due, in due course um, but there is also of course this, the, the, the personification of Ireland as, as uh, the, 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 the spare van the figure from the Ashling, the, the, uh, the, uh, the mother the Shan van Vogt everything you know, is it, is it the mere use of the female well of course uh, Mother Ireland is always a potent symbol on this island and for the time, we're talking about a century ago almost. There was a mm-hmm. different style. English, as it was spoken and written, was different That's to what we oh, have yeah. today. It stands up better than a lot of things but that were written. Yes, <laughs> it certainly does. It certainly yeah. does. And <coughs> when you think of the type of consensus that was required, mm-hmm. the different strains the, from mm. the, the socialist uh, uh, on the left of Connolly, when you think of the revolutionists that were present mm. on, uh, among the military council and the, the Gaelic Irelanders, it had to accommodate them all. Yeah. And it had to be of such a nature that it satisfied them all. So it laid out a quite a democratic charter for Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland belonged to the people of Ireland. It was uh, one of the yes. ringing endorsements of, of... And I suppose the feminist charter in that it's... Uh, it, uh, refers to, to uh, well, Irish men, men and Irish, Irish women, women. several times. Yes. Yeah. yes. And I think one of the enduring legacies of the document is the fact that even to this very day it's quite common for people to quote pieces uh. from the proclamation mm. uh, where we look after the children of the nation equally. Mm. And that is... Misunderstood, but well, children is taken literally. Literally sometimes. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite common meant. to hear our politicians mm. being challenged to this very day. Have we lived up to the spirit mm. of the proclamation? Are we cherishing mm. the children of the nation equally? Are we doing this in, yeah. in, in keeping with the spirit of the proclamation? I think that in itself. Yes. Uh, Ninety years afterwards, a document wrote it, obviously with a certain haste, but certainly <laughs> under pressure, yeah. we're facing into, a, into yeah. a, an incredible engagement, yeah. put together, and it holds together, and it remains a very progressive and admirable mm. document, both in sentiment and, and content, and it's still it still holds to this day. 
Um, it, it certainly is one of the, the, the greater legacies of the mm-hmm. time. Oh dear, have a go home. Have a little mind. Well, that was a good discussion. Yes, sir. Much obliged. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Sorry, Dutch. Is it you? Okay.